At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, movie review, Death of Stalin. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon supporters for making this show possible. Uh, If you're interested in donating or finding pictures for these episodes or more information about our podcast, visit our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well there, don't forget to follow us on social media. So this show is obviously different than our typical show. Our typical show obviously focuses around the Cold War and the history of it. And I try to take a very objective view of the facts and and the sources that I have. And I try to construct a narrative for you guys around the specific events or, you know, the subject matter. This is different in that obviously we're giving our opinion, uh, myself and my producer, Dave, about a movie. So it's going to be based on our particular backgrounds and either why we like it or we don't like it and our kind of views around that. So this is obviously opinion-based. So the other thing I want to bring up is obviously this is about movies and history and movies, you know, there's a lot of historically based movies and history and movies and are two different things. You know, obviously most movies about history are not historically accurate. Um, but that being said, the objective of movies and the objective of history and especially, you know, historians is very different. You know, his movies are primarily focused around creating entertainment and then secondarily putting across some kind of message right and you know because it's about entertainment they're looking their primary objective most of the time is to sell tickets you know they want people to go to this movie they want it to be action-packed and it has to be compressed right so a lot of times and you'll see this with this film in general you know events and sequences events are cut down and pushed together because they only have an hour or two hours at tops three hours to tell a story right and they they can't go in, into all the detail of what happened and why people made certain decisions that's why you know books are still a lot better to understanding a subject matter than watching a movie or even in some cases or most cases watching a documentary um, that being said, you know, movies and the way that they do history uh, work under certain constraints, one of them being time. Uh, the other is obviously what's more compelling because they're trying to make a story, you know, trying to make a story or a narrative around what happened. And they're also a lot of times trying to put across a message, um, be it, you know, Schindler's List and the horror of the Holocaust or Gone with the Wind. You know, all movies to a certain extent are trying to put forward a message about what they believed this particular era was about or, you know, reflecting our own time and what we can take away from that. So I think we should remember that with movies and take that into consideration when we do view them and we have opinions about them. So I don't expect all movies to be 100% historically accurate. Um, some movies obviously do it better than others. I mean, the movie Downfall, you know, from what I understand, what I've read is, is super close 
to what the actual events happened with Hitler towards the end of his life and that, that time in the bunker. Um, but then you have other movies like I'm thinking like Pearl Harbor, the latest one, where they don't really follow historically what happened, right? So you, you have some movies do it better than other movies, and I think that should also be taken into consideration. So typically, you know, the way we do the show is just a narrative base, right? So I go over a historical topic and I talk about it, but this is going to be a conversation-based episode, and I have my producer here, Dave, who went with me to see the movie, so you're also going to get his opinion on it. And I felt it would make more sense kind of have a general conversation about the movie than just me speaking monotone about it. Hello, listeners. This is producer Dave, and I'll be joining Jeff on this podcast. So the structure of this episode is going to be we're going to look at the movie more or less from scene by scene. We're both going to comment a little bit on each scene, um, and then at the end we're going to tie it together with some of our final thoughts around the movie and uh, kind of go from there. Yeah, listener, this episode is basically one big spoiler. So if you wanted to see the movie Death of Stalin, I'd recommend you pause the podcast, go to iTunes, Amazon, Netflix, wherever you get your movies from, watch it, and then come back and join us for the conversation. So the movie opens with the concert scene where they're playing at the Bolshoi, I believe it is, theater. And uh, there's also they introduce us to Stalin's inner circle uh, and mass arrests. And this scene more or less ends. They deliver the recording of this concert, which they have to redo uh, to Stalin's uh, officers. So they introduce us to Stalin's inner circle. And there's four primary characters in this inner circle. You have Beria, who was the head of – in the movie, they say he's the head of security. But technically speaking, at this time, he had been removed as the head of security, although he did have a lot of influence in the security apparatus from what I understand because he had a lot of friends and cronies uh, that were loyal to him that he had placed within the NKVD. So he still did have a lot of influence there. Um, then you have uh, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the secretary or the head of the Communist Party in Moscow. Uh, who is a very powerful figure uh, within the Soviet uh, system. And then you have Molotov, who is the foreign minister. And then you have Melenkov, who was Stalin's deputy. There was – there had started to develop, and you can kind of see the, big in, the inklings of this. There was more or less a power struggle or a rivalry between uh, Stalin – or I'm sorry, between Beria and Nikita Khrushchev. So what had happened was as World War II went along, Stalin saw that Beria was accumulating more and more power. So Stalin kind of set up a rival to him in Nikita Khrushchev. And they show in, in the movie like Nikita Khrushchev is just telling a lot of jokes. And that was actually one of the reasons why Stalin liked Khrushchev was Stalin told a lot of jokes. And it is actually – that's how Beria actually got in good with, with Stalin to begin with is Beria told a lot of jokes and Stalin liked to be entertained, I guess, just like anybody else. And these two guys were then now rivals about who could be the best practical joker, who could tell the most jokes. And, you know, this rivalry was developing between the two of them about, you know, who was going to be the favorite and, you know, who who's going to get more power. Um, Molotov is one of those individuals where, he would just do – he was completely loyal, loyal to Stalin, and he would do whatever Stalin wanted. He was – for lack of a better word, he was more or less a toady from what I've read about him and that he was just completely loyal because he was just afraid. He didn't want to get killed, so he'd do whatever Stalin told him to do and tried to stay on the right side of, of Stalin. 
Um, and then you have Melenkov. And from what all I can understand is that Melenkov was more or less uh, – he was a good friend of Beria, and Beria had kind of worked and developed him. But from what I understand, he had a very weak will or character about him. So he wasn't the strongest, most ideal kind of character. So then they also show – as this is all going on in the background or they cut the scenes where people are being arrested and they they kind of give you a nature of the terror of what was going on. You know, they have list, you know, Stalin's going through the list and he's saying, yeah, I like this guy, but you know what? Arrest him and make sure you get his wife too. And, you know, then Beria goes out and hands out the orders and he's like, yeah, kill these guys, kill these guys. And, you know, make sure that you drop off this guy in his pulpit after you execute him and these other people kill whoever you want. Right. And, it's kind of lighthearted, but it's a good description of what was going on, right? You know, every night there, you know, there was this kind of ongoing terror in Stalin's regime. Now, it did die out a little bit during the war because, you know, the Soviet Union and Stalin himself was focused on regime survival, right? So, you know, they didn't really, you know, have the time to focus on internal enemies. But once the war ended, you know, they really kicked back up the whole internal prosecutions, the whole internal purges of supposed enemies or people that Stalin thought, you know, and of course there's a lot of debate about why Stalin was purging these people, arresting these people, but it created nonetheless an atmosphere of fear, which I think they kind of show in the movie, you know, and focusing on the orchestra part, I think it goes to kind of the absurdity of the regime. So Stalin calls and he wants a recording of the performance that was just played by the orchestra. And of course they didn't record it. Now we have to find, you know, a conductor and the conductor knocks himself out and they have to find another one in the middle of the night. And, you know, a lot of this has actually happened, believe it or not. This plays pretty true to the events that happened. The only difference is, is that it did not happen in 1953. From what I understand, it actually happened in 1944. Um, so, again, this is one of those periods when they make a movie where they decided this is a great story. But, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to change some facts and just make it work in to kind of give you an idea or a feeling of what was going on. So although it's historically inaccurate, I think it's still a good story to kind of give you a representation of, you know, what the, the climate was and the kind of the absurdities that they would go through that they needed to pull people off the streets to re-record this thing. Um, they also show Stalin's inner circle, you know, at the very – dead night you know it's probably one o'clock in the morning and Stalin wanted to watch a movie right now from what we understand Stalin loved westerns and he loved gangster movies that was like his thing especially american movies so you know his inner circle they basically it was almost like japanese business culture you had to stay with the boss and you had to stay out with the boss as long as the boss wanted to right so if Stalin didn't go to bed until four o'clock in the morning you didn't go to bed until four o'clock in the morning no matter what you had to do the next day or what huge administrations that you had to run. I mean, because you should remember that, you know, Beria, Melenkov, they're running huge sectors of the economy. They're very, I mean, technically speaking, they're very busy people, but they literally have to make time to hang out with Stalin and make him laugh and watch his movies and not complain, right? And I kind of, that's a good feeling. They show that in the movie where, you know, they're watching this movie and it's probably like four o'clock in the morning and it's the last thing they want to do. The one scene too where they make, you know, they, uh, going back to the jokes, or you know, they're they're showing Khrushchev telling his wife, you know, I made a joke about this and Stalin laughed. I made a joke about the Navy, Stalin didn't laugh. That's actually true. From what we understand, Khrushchev went home every night and told his wife the jokes that he made to Stalin, and his wife kept a running count so that he could almost spreadsheeted out about which kind of jokes he was going to use on Stalin the next day. So I mean, this is the kind of thought that these people are putting into every day in their interactions with this guy. 
the pianist, they show her. She actually in the movie she asked for like I think it was twenty thousand rubles to you know go ahead and you know do the opera again. She actually didn't. She didn't ask for additional money. Um, but they also show at the end that she sent a letter to Stalin repudiating him, and that actually did happen. She actually did send a letter to Stalin repudiating him, and believe it or not, from what I understand, she actually was never punished for it. I, I, I guess Stalin just didn't care or, or what or just never got around to it, but she ended up being okay, believe it or not, even though she sent this letter repudiating his rule uh, to him. Yeah, for me, I just have a couple of things. I, I think it was interesting the way that the people in the theater who were so distant from Stalin, so distant from any of the NKVD forces so far as they knew, and yet the way that they were able to just self-police, almost as though they're they're living in this kind of panoptical environment, long before the days of um, big data or sophisticated camera surveillance. It was just the fear of being pointed out by one of the others. The other thing too is it's a dark humor that you don't see a lot in films. And if you're someone that lacks a moral conscience, it ends up being pretty humorous. And I'll tell you, I find it pretty funny. So looking forward to the next scene. So the second scene opens with uh, Stalin basically having a stroke and falling on the ground and uh, almost passing away. He isn't quite dead yet, but he does, but he's has suffered a stroke and he's laying on the floor. Uh, they show his two guards outside hear that there's something wrong, but they don't go in. And obviously that's because they didn't want to disturb Stalin. And if they did, they were afraid of losing their lives. So it kind of goes to the fact that Stalin had built up such a fearsome reputation that it actually helped cause his death in, in a weird sort of way that the, he was so scary that even when they thought there was something wrong with him, they could potentially save him. People didn't intervene because they were afraid that they might be executed for disturbing him. So he's not you – know, no one really discovers the body until the next morning. Now, in the movie, they have the maid goes in and she discovers that there's something wrong with it. I read different reports that actually one of his guards eventually because he didn't get up at his normal time. And Stalin was a late riser. He, he normally stayed up late into the night, went to bed. And then would wake up uh, like you know one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, or something on that order, from what I've read or understand. And since he didn't get up, they knocked on the door, got no answer, went in, and then saw that he was laying there. And then that's when they had called officials. They play it a little bit different um, in the movie, but I have read different reports of how it actually transpired. So you know, you know unless you're really there, we probably may never know how it actually all played out. Um, I want to know, Jeff, I mean, would someone really get killed for just a minor disturbance of Stalin? You know, that's a good question. I, you know, I have never heard of anybody getting killed for, for such a reason. But given how many people Stalin killed and how nonchalant he was about writing up lists of people who would be executed or arrested and sent to the gulag, I can understand their fear about being placed on that list or being executed for no reason. So although I've never heard about someone being executed or sent away for such a little act, I can kind of understand why they wouldn't want to tempt the fates by messing with a guy at the same time. So, you know, the fact that they also show kind of, you know, Barry is interrupted. He's torturing a guy. Now at this point, again, I'm not sure that Barry was torturing people because since he had been removed from that position as head of the security forces, but 
I think it goes to they're trying to show how horrible of a person Beria kind of was and he, he what he was involved with involves in, in reference to torturing people and you know raping their wives and he would you know he had a reputation for for raping women uh some people have have disputed this but there seems to be a lot of evidence that he was generally a bad guy um so they they kind of show that and again i don't know if that was all going on but i think they kind of added it in to kind of give you a background about what type of person beria is and they kind of set him up as the bad guy versus Bushimi, who is Nikita Khrushchev, is they're kind of setting up as, I guess, the good guy, more or less, if you will, in this dark comedy. I, I think that's the feeling that I got. Yeah, likewise. You know, some people say that Beria poisoned Stalin, and I haven't seen a lot of evidence of this, um, but it it definitely helped out Beria because a lot of people said. You know that Stalin was working towards getting eventually getting rid of him eventually, and a new round of purges. Uh, and like we talked earlier, he had already elevated Khrushchev sort of as a counter to Beria. So this really works out. And as you see in the, in the final part of this scene, where you know he goes over and he starts talking smack, you know, to Stalin, who is now incapacitated. You know, a lot of different, a couple different narratives that I've read or heard about of the event is that you know. Beria did start saying things to Stalin once he was incapacitated, right? Being blatantly disrespectful to him. Uh, another funny part is, you know, they're talking, you know, they find Stalin, you know, on the floor and, you know, that he's laying his own piss and they kind of all start coming in. And then you have the secondary ministers coming in, people like Bulgarin, who is, you know, head of defense. And, you know, it's funny because. They're all kind of making these emotional shows of how sad they are. And, you know, from what I understand, that did happen. And it's, you know, the question is, are they making these shows the show of, I mean, because in and, and some sense you feel like they're all kind of relieved or they're, they're like in a weird kind of place about their emotions around it. But they all want to make sure that they seem like they're sad. And I don't know if that's because they want to show each other that or because they're trying to prove it to themselves, or because they're afraid that Stalin might come back, or he might wake up from this and inquire about who said what, when, you know, when he was passed out. So it's a very interesting dynamic to kind of see them all go through this. And it is kind of, get, again, gets to the absurdity of it, and I think to some of the comedy of the whole situation. Yeah, I think that the doctor's mention is also very interesting because uh, they're right before this, Stalin had purged the doctors and what became as the, the doctor's plot. There was a belief that Jewish doctors, or by Stalin, Jewish doctors were trying to poison him. So he went out and basically liquidated and arrested and exiled a bunch of do- doctors throughout Moscow. So there wasn't a lot of doctors around that could come to his aid. And again, it's one of those weird ironies of history that his terror was so crazy that you know now he's in a position where he needs a doctor he can't get one because he's erected arrested exiled or executed most of the best doctors in moscow so the next scene opens with they're basically chasing down whatever doctors are left in moscow uh to arrest to semi-arrest them to bring them to basically uh look at stalin and they you know the head doctor that looks like they find he's been retired for six years he tries to plead for his life and you know they throw him in the back of a truck uh, to take him out to the DACA to to look at Stalin, and you know they pretty much announce that you know Stalin's not going to make it; he's paralyzed. Uh, so we're introduced to Stalin's children, Steflana, 
and she's Stalin's daughter. Uh, she was actually Stalin's favorite child, along with Vasily, uh, Stalin's son. And uh, Stalin's son was pretty much an alcoholic, um, and he was head of the sports teams or sports in the Soviet Union. And they even talk about briefly, which is actually what happened, which is a true story, is that the uh, Russian hockey team plane crashed. Hockey team was killed, and Vasily had to rebuild the hockey team. And, you know, obviously no one can know about this because, like he said, planes don't crash in the Soviet Union. So it was kind of another part of this whole farce of events that was going on at the time. Um, you know, and Stalin's daughter is really interesting because she actually ended up defecting to the United States. And I believe it was 1961 or the 19, or the early 1960s. And she actually ended up living in the United States uh, in Florida until 2011, I think, is when she passed away. But you can double-check me and write me a horrible email if I'm wrong. But Bar- we also see Beria is – you know he's starting to take over. He's ordering Moscow closed off. That actually happened a lot later uh, from what I understand. But you, it does show – because he immediately tried to start retaking control of the security services you know, because he knew that's where his power came from. Um, so, you know, that part is accurate is once, you know, he, Stalin had died, you start seeing this move for everyone to kind of, you know, the, to try to take power, you know, that the lines are starting to be drawn, you know, the, obviously everyone re- understands there must be new leadership. And the thing that they kind of hint at, they talk about vaguely is they talk about reforms and, you know, the leadership, you know, Khrushchev, um, Beria, the rest of them, Malenkov, they all saw that the Soviet Union needed reforms, but Stalin didn't want to implement a lot of these reforms. They wanted to make changes to the gulag system. They actually wanted to get rid of it. They saw the inefficiencies in the system, and they couldn't really do anything as long as Stalin was alive. But now that he had passed away, they all saw the opportunities to kind of correct some of these issues. And you know they were thinking about these things, and now there was an opportunity for it to happen. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to know watching that was seeing his son, Vasily, very funny character in the movie and a little bit of a sadistic goofball. Was he really like that in real life, Jeff? From what I understand, he was. So from what I understand, this is pretty close to how he was or an accurate, semi-accurate portrayal. Like we knew, know that he was an alcoholic. He, you know, he was more or less living in his father's shadow. He was eccentric. You know, and he was prone to these, you know, outbursts, if you will. Uh, so that, from what I understand, is is an accurate portrayal. Good deal. On to scene four. So in the next scene, we see Stalin actually wakes up temporarily, um, and he points to something. Uh, it looks like he points – in the movie, it looks like he points to – picture on the wall um now from what i read he pointed to the individuals in the room and then fell back and then passed away um and this more or less i guess follows what happened in real life um so that so that kind of happens and then vasily finally arrives and you know they're they basically have stalin the operating table and he goes crazy um and starts you know, saying some stuff and try, he tries to shoot in the air and they have to take the gun away from him. Um, and then from there they place the body in a truck and they basically all race to follow Stalin's casket back to Moscow. And then from there they proceed in the movie to execute everyone that, you know, a bunch of people they execute who worked at the DACA, uh, 
and then they also uh, just like pack everything up and ship it away. Now that part, I never read anything about that happening. That was kind of weird, and I'm not really sure if that didn't happen. I'm not really sure why they put that part in the movie or why they decided to show all that. So it was an interesting scene, but I, I don't know where it was coming from, I guess. Yeah, on to the next scene. So this next scene, we have uh, Beria pulls Molotov's wife, uh, Paulina, out of the gulag, uh, basically in order to win Molotov's favor in the power struggle that's developing um, because he wants his votes on the Central Committee um, to basically help him uh, become leader of the Soviet Union. Um, Now, Molotov's wife had been arrested uh, because of her Jewish identity in connection to the doctor's plot and because, again, Stalin thought these doctors were trying to poison him and that they were Jewish. And Stalin became um, very anti-Semitic, especially in his later years, and basically didn't trust anyone with Jewish connections. And, you know, so he had Molotov's wife basically thrown into the gulag and exiled. Uh, Molotov himself renounced his wife, although he did continue to love her uh, from all reports, but he went along with it. And he himself... um, uh, basically was on the way out, as you see in the movie. He he started to lose more and more authority, and he even you know he lost his position as foreign uh, secretary, and himself was looking at potentially either being executed or sent to the gulag. Um, so you know Stalin's death actually was a stroke of luck for him as well. Meanwhile, Khrushchev has come to his apartment, and he's trying to convince him to side with him. Uh, because he's trying to say, you know, Beria basically planned to have you killed with Stalin. Um, so you could see the factionalism starting to develop. And I would, I would also like to point out it's interesting that they're living in apartments. You know, these guys are the most powerful people in the Soviet Union under Stalin, and they're living in apartments uh, that are actually a little bit below American middle class today. Unlike the Soviet Union later with the nomenclatura, who basically started to accumulate wealth and power under them. You know the uh, the apparatchiks of the Soviet Union. These guys, they didn't have, they weren't living that la- lavish lifestyle yet under Stalin. So that's kind of interesting. Um, as far as I know, that's accurate. But I, I, I thought that's an interesting note uh, to point out. And it's also funny to see, you know, Molotov denounces his own wife before she comes in, and then he rejoices at seeing her, which is kind of funny. Um, and it's also interesting to point out that. Uh, both Paulina and Molotov, although they were eventually pushed out by Khrushchev later in the 1950s, they actually continued to live into the 1980s. And if I remember correctly, Molotov lived until like 1986. So, you know, he they had – so he almost made it to the end of the Soviet Union. So it's just an interesting side note. Was it common for Beria to take prisoners for political gain? Or was the incident with Molotov's wife just kind of a happy accident? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, And I actually wondered that myself. I wonder if he had decided to just, you know, arrest her and not execute her because he planned on somehow using her later. Um, Or are we attributing too much to him? I mean, we know that they knew, you know, by 1950 or so that Stalin only had so much time left. You know, it kind of does make sense. Maybe Beria thought, like, you know, if I can keep her in my back pocket, 
until, you know, or was it just luck that she happened to be still alive, that she made it through and she wasn't executed yet? I mean, that's an interesting question about, you know, whether he had enough foresight to say, okay, well, you know, and I'm sure they were all game planning this because I would imagine I would be if I was in that situation, you know, okay, what's going to happen when the boss passes away? I mean, he was getting elderly, so they had to figure, you know, how could this play out? I could obviously use her as leverage against Molotov, you know. So that's an interesting question, and I, I don't know if we'll ever really know the full circumstances of that, um, whether he planned to keep her alive as future leverage or it just worked out that way. So the next scene, we see Malenkov and Beria are meeting, and they're talking about reforms and slowing down the arrest and making reforms. And then they we switch to the first meeting of the Central Committee post-Stalin's death, and they're starting to make decisions around what's going to happen. So in this meeting, it's kind of it's, – it's funny, I mean, without a doubt, that they're they, – everything is decided unanimously somewhat. And the you know the main thing that's happening in this me- meeting is Beria and Malenkov are basically trying to consolidate and gain more power. And Khrushchev is obviously seeing what's happening, and he's in his own way trying to fight against this. And it's interesting because one of the first things that Beria does is he wants to stop or freeze the executions, and he also wants to – uh, let go or start freeing people from the gulag system. And there's a lot of debate uh, that I've read in regards to why was Beria starting to make these decisions. Uh, and a certain level, he's obviously, manip- you know, from what I've read, he's basically manipulating Malenkov to go along with him. But some people are saying that he made these decisions because he wanted to repair his his reputation to become leader of the Soviet Union because Obviously, everyone knew him as a henchman, as a murderer, an executioner, that he had to change his reputation. And by letting people go and ending the executions, he could he could uh, basically rebuild his reputation. And eventually, I guess the idea was he would place all that on Stalin. Um, but another argument goes, which I've read, and this may be a combination of both of these, but another argument goes is that you know, Beria was a bureaucrat. If you remember from some of our, our episodes, he was involved with the production and the building of the atomic bomb. He understood the Soviet economy, and on a certain level, he understood that the gulag, the the terror, the arrests, the executions were not helping the economy, and it was causing a lot of problems within the Soviet economy and for him to manage and run the economy. So there's also the belief that he might have seen this kind of activity even though he wanted to stop it. He obviously was a part of the machinery. He couldn't, so he kind of went along with it. And now that Stone was dead, he saw a perfect opportunity to end that and also to simultaneously rebuild his, his, his reputation. So that's kind of the reason why he started to end these executions and you know that started to start freeing people from the gulag. The other interesting thing is they kind of show – how much ideology ruled the Soviet Union with Molotov's diatribe where he goes, you know, you don't know how this guy's going to vote because he's saying, well, I don't know if we should end Stalin's, uh, you know, his last orders executing all these people because it's not what Stalin would have wanted. But on the other hand, you know, Stalin always respected collective leadership. But on the other hand, so he kind of takes a, a couple different zigs and zags through Soviet ideology 
to get where he wants to be. And I think that's a, that's a it's a crucial figure of communism that I think a lot of people miss is that everything, a lot of the decisions that they're making had to be uh, justified to the the ideology, right? You couldn't just make a decision; you had to be able to back it up ideologically to to make sure that it was canon, right? With a Marxist Leninist theory or you know Stalinism, so you know the you know they they needed to to understand why they needed to make a decision and then they had to justify it right so you know a lot of times you know today i think we're not making this our decisions that way but it's it's interesting to see how people are making those decisions through that kind of lens when they would have meetings is it something where they would be able to disagree or argue about certain topics and if so, I mean, how could they do that under Stalin? So as far as I understand with Stalin, the meetings and, you know, I, as, as I understand it, you know, at, especially at this point by the late 40s and the 1950s, a lot of people were not giving Stalin alternative opinions. You know, Stalin basically ran the, the meetings and called the shots. And they more or less listened to whatever his commands were and followed his orders, right? I mean, they may present alternatives to Stalin or you know answers to specific problems if Stalin didn't have a strong opinion on it. Um, but from what I understand, Stalin was basically calling shots. So I think this is another illustration. This meeting of okay, well, now that we don't have a guy who calls a shot and the shots anymore, like, well, how how do we do things, right? We it's kind of like imagine when you're a kid, you always had the authority of the teacher that was there telling you, okay, open your books to whatever page. This is what we're going to do today. And now the teacher's gone, and but everyone is basically trying to act responsible. And you know the, the students are now left to try to decide what they're going to do, how they're going to move forward. So the next scene that we see is uh, Khrushchev uh, basically preparing Stan's funeral extravaganza, if you will, uh, you know, the hall where he was laid to rest and all of the trappings which surround that. Um, and then we see Zhukov, who was Russia's greatest or one of Russia's greatest generals, arrives and, you know, he's upset uh, about the army being replaced by the NKVD. And, you know, traditionally, especially within the Russian military, there had been a rivalry between the Russian army and the NKVD. And there, you know, there's words exchanged, especially between Beria and Zhukov as well, um, because, you know, the, and it, it, from what I understand, there was always rivalry between the two because, you know, Beria wanted control and he obviously saw the army as a threat to his control of the security services. Uh, and you kind of see this also reflected in the fact that the they he cancels the trains from coming into or he tries to cancel the trains from coming into Moscow because he doesn't want people to come there. So from what I understand, I never heard or read anything about that. Um, so I, I'm not sure that happened. But on the other hand, I think they are kind of trying to make this up more or less or, or introduce this because they want to try to explain the rivalry between Beria and, and Zhukov, which actually went back to World War II. But obviously, again, in the movie and the short time that they have, they can't really bring that kind of conflict to the fore. So they needed to kind of create a reason uh, for the viewer who might not be as familiar with what, you know, why are the, why do these two guys dislike each other and, you know, kind of reflect that, 
power struggle between the, the Red Army and the NKVD. And I think this is the way the instrument in which they use. The way that Zhukov is portrayed in the movie, he seems to have this larger-than-life personality, which, number one, is that accurate? And if so, how is he able to coexist in the same country as Stalin? You know, that's a great question. You know, I honestly don't know enough about Zhukov. Um, I've obviously read a little bit about him, but I haven't read any biographies about Zhukov to kind of get a real good personal feel for him. Um, but I do know that he was very attuned to Stalin's concerns. Um, and part of the reason he, from what I understand, if this is correct, he actually, you know, during the purges, he actually asked to be stationed in the Russian Far East around the, the border with China because he didn't want to be near Stalin because he didn't, he was, he didn't want to get executed, right? Because he knew that Stalin was the type of guy that liked the limelight. And later on, you know, Stalin even made noises about arresting Zhukov, but Zhukov was so famous at that point and so popular that Stalin just couldn't have him arrested. So he basically had him sent to another remote military post to kind of get him out of the limelight. And obviously with the death of Stalin, he came back into the fore because he was so popular and you know, and Stalin was gone at this point. You know, a lot of people say, especially, you know, once Stalin saw him at that closing ceremony, you know, if you ever see the pictures, you know, you could see it on YouTube, Russia's like final victory parade, the end of World War II, Zhukov is out there on this white horse riding around. And obviously, you know, Stalin is this older guy with a limp who's, you know, standing at the top of the, uh, you know, uh, Lenin's mausoleum looking down, right? You could see the difference between the kind of virulent, strong Zhukov and, you know, obviously older gentleman Stalin. And maybe he was larger than life. I don't know. I think that's just something I have to look more into. So the scene opens and we're looking at uh, basically Stalin's funeral and there's funeral spectators that are coming and they're looking at Stalin's body. And obviously tens of thousands of people did line up to see Stalin's uh, corpse uh, and, you know, pay their respects um, and then we have a scene where Stalin's daughter is asking Beria if she could find her former lover, Alexei, who had been sent by Stalin uh, to the gulag. So it's, it's interesting because I, I, I don't know whether or not that actually happened, if she actually did ask Beria if he could find her or find him rather. Um, so that's actually kind of interesting to me. Um, and then you have Vasily who comes in, who's drunk, who's just causing basically problems. And, you know, at one point, Zhukov basically just punches him in the gut and kicks him. Um, again, I, I don't think that's accurate, but it, it was an interesting scene. I think it goes more, again, towards uh, Vasily's character. Um, and then, of course, they show this uh, part again about the trains where, you know, Nikita Khrushchev opens the lines back up, the trains come in, and then there's these shootings, and supposedly 1,500 people get, get killed. That, as far as I understand, never happened. Um, that part, you know, didn't happen. But I think, again, they're kind of trying to show how they're going to do this coup against Beria or get rid of him. And they, in the movie, they try to use this as justification to get rid of him. Um, in real life, the justification that they used against him was actually the reforms that he was leading. And, of course, some of the issues that had occurred in Eastern Europe, especially East Germany and Berlin, where there was an uprising, they kind of used that to they blamed that on Beria and as a justification to get rid of him. And also we see Zhukov and Nikita Khrushchev are getting together and basically 
deciding with each other, like, okay, we're going to get rid of Beria because, you know, Zhukov has the power of the military. And Zhukov did support Nikita Khrushchev in getting rid of Beria. Uh, the only thing is, though, they kind of just show it within the same day. Um, and that this was supposedly taking place right after the funeral. This actually took place over a period of a few months. What I thought was interesting was when Beria started to confront the other Politburo members and said, I got documents on you. I got papers on each one of you. Did uh, In order to get to the positions that people like Molotov, Malenkov, and, and uh, Khrushchev got to is it something where they would have to commit some of these crimes they would have to put other people on the list and and they would have to be complicit in this in these kind of schemes i think for sure i think everyone was more or less complicit in the murders and in the the executions and the exiles which took and which took place during stalin's reign of terror and they all had denounced each other denounced friends denounced loved ones and were willing to do horrible things to either maintain their position or increase their power. And I think that was – and I don't know if that whole conversation took place, but I think it reflects what the, the director is trying to show is that even with Stalin dead, the crimes that he had committed, they were all – were involved and took place. And they – obviously they're talking a lot about reform. So, you know, the, the thing is, can they, even amongst themselves, can they even be real reformers given all the blood on their hands? And, of course, they're all guilty, and they all sort of know this, and they're trying to find their way more or less out of Stalin's shadow um, to politically be able to reform the country and not have to deal with his legacy, which I think it goes to a certain extent to the, the issue that even Russia has today. Obviously, you know, this is a big part of Russian history. You know, how does Russia reflect and deal with this? I mean, for them in their time, it was, you know, how do they reflect or how do they justify their cooperation and their uh, their their actions during Stalin's regime now that they want to reform things? So in the final scene, we see basically the arrest and trial of Beria by the rest of the Central Committee. And you really see Nikita Khrushchev basically come to the fore as the leader of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, I, I could go into all the differences between what I actually read or, or heard about this whole episode versus the movie. Um, but I would recommend checking out episode 43, which is our episode about Beria, which I go into it in pretty much a lot of detail. Uh, so I would check that out. Um, you know, I guess it's just some closing thoughts around that part of the, or that scene in the movie. I thought it was um, obviously very compressed for time, and but I do think it was interesting or accurate that they showed that Malenkov was kind of you know weak willed and kind of back and forth between the whole, the whole episode, um, as Beria had always been a supporter of his, and they'd always worked with Beria. Um, so it was kind of hard for him to cut the ties. And from what I understand, that was more or less the truth as well. Um, but when he saw that Beria was going down, you know, he kind of moved to save himself, which is what you see in the movie. So that was kind of not necessarily a accurate, but authentic in terms of his character, I felt. So, you know. Beria in this movie is obviously portrayed as the antagonist. But I, I wanted to know, in real life, was Beria really this sadistic, calculating unprincipled man that 
the movie seems to depict? Or was he someone who was just conflicted because based on the society that he was in, based on the company that he kept, that his actions more were a reflection of self-preservation than some evil intention? I think he had a sadistic side to him. I mean, he is obviously... I think there's I think there's compelling evidence that he was just a general rapist um and the way and some of his executions I mean I think cuz sometimes the executions he didn't just execute to execute people sometimes sometimes he literally tortured people and you know I think maybe at one point he was doing it just to survive but eventually it turned into something else uh and I think he he honestly had a real you know, passion for power. I mean, and again, if I point back to the episode that I did on him, uh, he he was ambitious, um, and he was looking to move his way up the system, and you know, he was willing to do whatever it took. And I think he took some pleasure out of you know the opportunities he could take um, to rape young girls and to kill his opponents and to make people suffer. So I do think that you know he was a bad guy, for lack of a better term. You know, Svetlana, at the end of the movie, she has a line that she says to Nikita Khrushchev, I didn't know it would be you. Was that kind of the general consensus that up until that point, you didn't think it would be Nikita Khrushchev and all of a sudden he was able to the support necessary to become the general secretary of the Soviet Union? Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, Nikita Khrushchev was – he was an able guy, I mean, from what I read. Uh, I mean, he had his moments. Um, but, I, you know, I guess in looking – and again, we're looking at it from hindsight, uh, so we know what happens. So I wasn't viewing him as an incompetent person, but I think, you know, maybe that was – you know, everyone more or less put their if – you know, if you had to make a – if you, you know, if you didn't know anything and you had to make a bet in 53, you know, who's going to be leader by 56 – I think most people would have bet Beria, right? Because he had the power, he had the influence, he had the structure, you know. He so I think it made sense why a lot of people thought that he would come out of it as number one. I think Khrushchev, especially they kind of show this in the movie. I think he more or less was able to play off the fact that everyone knew that Beria was a danger to them, and everyone was kind of afraid of Beria because he was so powerful. So it was kind of it seemed like they all ganged up on the, the strongest one and took him down, and then it kind of left Nikita Khrushchev to come in and swoop up the prize of, of leadership is more or less what it looks like. Okay, so it was more of a, a situation of if we if we get rid of Beria, then we can have – we can fight this out, but we all know that we're going to be alive. Whereas if we fight with Beria and we lose, there's a good chance that we can end up dying. Whereas if we fight with Nikita Khrushchev or Molotov or Malenkov, that we would still end up alive. Yeah, I think, you know, this is the point in the Soviet Union where things change, right? You know, that he has that line at the end of the movie about, well, this is where we turn the corner, you know, no more executions. Um, and executions obviously continue to happen in the Soviet Union, but... It wasn't like the old days under Stalin. There wasn't 
like mass liquidations or or purges of of the high level Soviet leadership that happened anymore. And when Nikita, like for instance, when Nikita Khrushchev got pushed out and basically a soft coup and Brezhnev took over, you know, Nikita Khrushchev just lost his job. Like, but he was still alive. He wasn't he wasn't exiled to Siberia. He wasn't shot. So they kind of turned a corner where you know people were allowed to live still, even if they failed. They were just took took power away from them. The same thing, you know, when later on when Khrushchev removed Molotov and and other figures from power because he tied them to Stalin, he didn't necessarily have them all executed. You know, Molotov, like I said, lived into the 1980s, even though he ceased to have any kind of power or influence. He wasn't shot. So it was a kind of a change or break with the past. Um, for the for the Soviet system to move from a system where basically you had to be getting rid of, you know, and that had really, you know, it, it started with Stalin and Trotsky and the rest of them where, you know, Stalin was just killing all of his political opponents. And I think that they kind of understood the terror of that system and they wanted to try to move away from it, uh, which they were to a certain extent successful and able to to do. Strip away the comic elements, the one-liners, the over-the-top performances, the fun gags. And I want to know, is this film really a depiction of what actually might have happened? So I think it was authentic in many ways. I mean, if you strip away kind of the, the comedy of it. I mean, it's hard to say. Obviously, I didn't live then. And, you know, as, as long as you didn't – but. From what I've read in terms of books and sources on it, it, it you know it it reflects a lot of that material in terms of the terror, in terms of the absurdity. Um, so that all makes sense, and I think it, it was it is educational. It's it's I mean I think most viewers who watch it will walk away understanding the Soviet Union in that period of time and Stalin's rule a little bit more than if they hadn't watched it. Um, or if they were ignorant of this of of the kind of the story, um, so yeah, I, I do think that they they caught or they managed to capture some of the atmosphere of the time, and they managed to highlight some of the issues of the regime uh, and the different things that people were dealing with in their lives. Any final thoughts on the film? Uh, so I think the the most important question I had, even before I went to go see this movie, that kind of bothered me about the movie, and I would just want to say from the beginning, I liked the movie. Uh, I thought it was funny, um, but I kind of felt guilty in watching the movie. And uh, the reason I say that, and some of you might say I'm a party pooper, but the reason I say that is because I wonder if the movie should be made because obviously the reign of Stalin was – you know, very horrible. Uh, you know, an estimated, according to some accounts, an estimated 24 million people died during his rule. Uh, you had the gulags, you had the purges. Uh, it was a reign of terror. You know, a lot of horrible things happened. And when I think to myself, you know, could you have made a comedy or even a dark comedy about Hitler and the Holocaust or Mao and the Red Revolution? I don't think so. I just can't imagine trying to bring up those subjects and make a comedy out of it. Um, that said, like I said, I did enjoy the show. I thought it was – they did fairly good on the history of it. I, I think they, they gave a real feel to the time period. But I, I do sort of question, you know, 
you know, should we be making light of these types of events? I mean, because this this was people's lives. So I think that it was it was good, but I, I still kind of question whether this movie should be made. Now, I think everyone has a right. I just want to say I'm a, I'm a big advocate for freedom of speech. I don't think the government should ban these types of movies or anything like that. Um, but I, and I feel that if they want to make these movies, they, they certainly have the right to do so. But I, I wonder, was it in good taste or, or, you know, I personally would not try to create a movie like that. What are your thoughts, Dave? I completely disagree. I see it in the same vein as, as, uh, Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. It's a dark political comedy and I can totally appreciate that turning Stalin's purges into a farcical comedy might make you uncomfortable, might make you want to clutch your pearls. But I think it's also important that you see this for the absurdity that it is. I also, what I like about the fact that it's a comedy is that you see that people are complicit in this, that this crazy guy, Stalin, has these warped worldview and there's an entire society that goes along with it from people carrying out his orders to the citizens rightfully so worrying about their lives but it completely became just overwhelmingly bizarre of a lifestyle and i think if you show it as a drama i think what you run the risk of is just portraying them as sad victims to this one guy who happens to be this elderly frail guy and understanding that their role in it that the the role that they played in allowing this person to be able to take power and allowing this person to be able to manipulate the system the way that he has. And the fact that people are allowing that, I think makes it a comedy and not necessarily a drama or something that should just be seen in the light of uh, victimhood. Yeah. I think a comedy is a perfect vehicle for this type of idea that it's crazy that an entire society Hundreds of millions of people would allow their lives completely to be decimated and to be completely controlled by this one crazy guy. Right. So I I see the, the, the farce of it sometimes, but I also think that that was a part of, you know, what may look like farce to us was a part of Stalin's plan to be able to organize and run the society via terror to, to accomplish his goals, you know, the way he thought out in, in his mind. So thank you for listening. If you want to see the pictures from the episode, follow us on social media, donate to the podcast. Please go to www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. And while there, don't forget to fill out our survey so you can help us to bring you a better show.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.